1: During his historic journey aboard the HMS Beagle, Charles Darwin spent over a month on an island off the coast of Chile, known as Chilaue. It wasn't his final destination, but he still managed to work and collect information and specimens, including a small endangered fox known now as Darwin's Zorro. He also witnessed the after-effects of an earthquake and made note of a rainbow that transitioned from the typical semicircle to a full circle right before his eyes. But it was the people he encountered that seemed to impact him the most. He later wrote, They are a humble, quiet, industrious set of men. Although with plenty to eat, the people are very poor, and the lower orders cannot scrape together money sufficient to purchase even the smallest luxuries. He also noted seeing a pair of black-necked swans, but thankfully Darwin didn't have the same view of birds that the local people did. And still do, actually. One local historian recalls how, when he was a boy, a hunchback heron flew low over his fishing boat. When he told his father, the older man grabbed his shotgun and waited for the bird to return. Why? Because for as long as anyone could remember, The people of Chiloé have believed that some birds are more than they appear. Some people, it seems, believe they are warlocks. Seeing one was a bad omen, hinting that someone close to you would die. All of us are ruled by authority to some degree, whether it's through our government, our religion, or our family ties. Often it's all three. But there's another governing body, one that's as old as time itself. And on Chiloé, it controlled people for centuries. Sometimes, you see, people are ruled by fear. I'm Aaron Mankey, and this is Lore. (laughs) The Incas called it the place of the seagulls. They stayed away from the area, believing it was the border between their empire of prosperity and safety and the cold, dark wilderness to the south. Chiloé isn't a large island, perhaps less than a hundred miles from north to south, but it's certainly the largest in the collection of small islands there off the coast of Chile. And to visit it is to go back in time. Green Hills Mountains in the distance, dark waves of the South Pacific, lapping on the shore where colorful houses are built on stilts to stay above the mud and the rocks. Darwin described it as beautiful in 1835. He wrote of the mixture of evergreen trees and tropical vegetation, with rolling hills and thick forests. And all that green, Darwin postulated, was due to the enormous amount of rainfall. Gray skies and wet soil are a constant of life in Chilaue, then as it is now. And while most people have never heard of the place, the unique churches there have an architectural style that's earned them classification as UNESCO World Heritage Sites. There are churches, of course, because Jesuit missionaries built them shortly after arriving at the beginning of the 17th century. But don't let these European artifacts fool you. The culture the Jesuits encountered when they arrived, was far outside their realm of experience. The Chiloé of old was home to a vast collection of myths and legends that informed almost every aspect of life. And because much of the economy and culture of the island was built around the fishing industry just as it is today, many of those stories have elements of the sea in them. One example is the legend of the ghost ship known as the Kaleuchi. According to the stories, The Kaleuchi patrols the waters off the coast of the island, moving both above the water and below. The ship itself is a sentient being and has the ability to sense when someone from the island has drowned. After they die, these people are brought onto the ship by two sisters and their brother, where their new life can begin. That life consisted of both an eternal party aboard the ship as well as working as sailors in the transport and unloading of illegal cargo for the island's merchants. Even today, there are many in Chiloé who claim to have seen the ship still patrolling the cold waters offshore. There are other legends that haunt the island as well. Stories speak of the Truco, a sort of forest troll or little person who lives in hollow trees deep in the forest. Her task is to protect the trees but they have also become a convenient scapegoat for unwed mothers. The truco, they say, is irresistible to virgins who wander into the forest, and those women frequently return home pregnant. La Pecoya is said to be a woman who appears to fishermen along the coast. She is described as young and beautiful, but her hair is covered in wet kelp, and the locals consider her to be an omen, although the outcome depends on the circumstances. If she appears facing the sea your fishing nets will overflow if she's facing you though those nets will be empty and in the rare instances when she appears right in front of a person legend says it is best to close your eyes and run as fast as you can lest she seduce you and lead you down into the sea and one more legend is that of the basilisk a creature that appears elsewhere around the globe In Chiloé, though, the basilisk is more than just an enormous snake. Here, it also has the head of a rooster and hatches from an egg. Some stories tell of how the basilisk will nest beneath a person's house. During the night, it will slither out and suck the air from the lungs of the people sleeping inside. For as frightening as some of these creatures and stories might be, though, none of them compares to the legends of the Brujo de Chiloé. The warlocks of the island. They have struck fear into the hearts of the locals for centuries. They have shaped many aspects of their culture. They have been blamed for tragedy, for loss, and even for illness and death. most frightening of all is the simple fact that, unlike all the other legends found on the island, the Brujo were real. We know the Brujo were real because they were brought to trial in 1880. Almost overnight, what was once little more than a whispered legend, a sort of Chilean boogeyman, if you will, took on flesh and bone. Then what the investigation uncovered was truly shocking. Let's step back, though. It's important to understand where the warlocks came from. The short answer is that we don't really know. But there are ideas, and many of them hold promise and truth. The most common theory is that something powerful was formed as a result of the collision between the indigenous culture and the Catholic faith of the Spanish when they first arrived. The ingredients for this new breed of legend had been there for a very, very long time though. On one side, we have the Makai. These were the traditional shaman of the Chilean culture, the healers, the wise people. Their realm was that of revelations, interpretations of dreams, and serving as the oracle for the community. On the other side, there was the Kalku. These were the practitioners of black magic, considered to be the witches and warlocks by most people. Unlike the Makai, who sat at the center of their society and were documented religious figures, the Kalku were more mythical, spoken of in stories, and whispered about at night. The Kalku are described as Makai gone bad, those who became more interested in selfish gain than serving the community. I know this will be a gross oversimplification, but think of the Makai as the Jedi, and the Kalku as the Sith, the light side and the dark. And as Han Solo recently said, it's true, all of it. Enter the Spanish conquistadors. They arrived in 1567 and brought countless stories with them of European witches, but the culture in Chiloé has always been very male-driven, and so the idea of a female witch was converted to the male warlock in the public narrative. This melding of religions has actually happened in many countries across the centuries, where the Catholic faith would meet ancient beliefs and rather than wipe it out, would blend with it, unintentionally becoming something new. And that's how the Brujo were born. Maybe. Some scholars make reference to a story from the 17th century of a Spaniard, named Jose de Moraleda, who met the Makai and wanted desperately to impress them. He challenged them to a magical duel, and after they brought in one of their best Makai, Moraleda was defeated. As a prize, the Spaniard handed over to them a book of spells that he claimed had been gathered from around the world. It was with that book of spells, the legend says, that the Brujo built their cult. Some still refer to it by its original name, the Recta Provincia, the Righteous Province And according to them, this secret group manipulated the culture on the island for two centuries. Initiation into the group was complex and drenched with the occult. The first step was to wash away any remnant of Christian baptism. And they did this by bathing in one of the local rivers for 15 nights in a row. Some of them were instructed to murder a relative or a close friend. And then, when all of that was completed, They had to run around the island naked while invoking the Devil's name. The Brujo maintained their power over the people of Chiloé through an odd mixture of supernatural rumor and Mafia-like control. They would most commonly force local farmers to give them produce or money, but they were also known to bribe local authorities and even created a shadow government that ruled in the places where the Spanish didn't reach. And rather than use violence or traditional weapons to enforce their policies, they used the threat of a curse. Ultimately, it was this game of blackmail and protection rackets that brought an end to their reign over the people of Chiloé. And so, in 1880, over 100 members of the cult were arrested and interrogated. Many were released when they turned out to be nothing more than Makai looking for a community to belong to, but some were held for trial on the charge of murder. The darkest revelations from the trial, though, were never believed. The supernatural creatures, the book of spells, the secret hidden cave where the cult maintained their seat of power. All of this was passed off as folklore and superstition. However, eyewitness testimony says otherwise. The trials revealed many new details about the brujo and their beliefs practices and inner workings some almost sound like they were pulled right out of a children's book they're so simple and benign while others are downright chilling for example one of the men on trial in 1880 revealed that each warlock carried a pet lizard with him this lizard according to the man would be tied to the warlock's forehead and because it was magical of course it gifted him with powers These warlocks were even said to communicate and interact with the ghost sailors aboard the Caliuche, using seahorses as aquatic carrier pigeons to pass messages back and forth. Other stories spoke of how the warlocks recruited new spies for their sect. According to the legend, these warlocks would kidnap young women and would give them a special elixir to drink. Once ingested, these girls would vomit until their stomachs and intestines lay on the ground at their feet. Then, lightened of their load, they would transform into birds and do the bidding of their master. None of this, though, compares to what the Brujo were said to have kept in their cave. One of the men on trial in 1880, an elderly man named Mateo, claimed that in the 1860s he had been asked to visit the cave to feed the creatures kept there. And although his testimony was rejected by the court as fantasy, some have been left wondering. The cave, it is said, was difficult to locate, and rightly so. It contained multiple magical items, including the book of spells the group had received from the Spaniard Moraleta, as well as a bowl that was said to show the future to those who looked into it. And because these were objects of power for the warlocks, they needed to be carefully guarded. The entrance was a door hidden beneath the grass and soil in a rocky canyon near the coast, and with it a metal key. Mateo told the court that he opened the entrance to the cave only to find two creatures inside that nearly defied description. One was called the Chivato, a humanoid creature that was briefly described as goat-like and walking on four legs. But it was the other thing in the cave that Matteo had no trouble describing, because at first glance, it seemed to be nothing more than a bearded man. This man, though, was deformed. Not mildly or by birth, but intentionally and drastically. He was called the Mbunche, and although the one that Mateo witnessed appeared old, he said that they typically began as infants. Now, this next part isn't for the faint of heart, but it's necessary to understand the level of cruelty and barbarism that this cult practiced. According to writer Bruce Chatwin, who visited the island in 1975, the locals still maintain a good amount of folklore around the creation of the Mbunche. The warlocks would kidnap a male six-month-old child, Chatwin recorded, and then deliver it to the one known as the Deformer, who lived inside the cave. The span's job was to shape and disfigure the infant's body. The head would be twisted daily until, after many months, it faced backwards. Limbs and fingers would be disjointed, and even its ears and mouth would be malformed by the deformer. The final characteristic, according to Chatwin, is the right arm. It would be bent backwards, and the hand slipped into an incision made on the right shoulder blade. Then the wound would be sewn up, leaving the arm permanently affixed to the child's back. Why this was done is something that history has forgotten over the years, but the impact is just as powerful today. Left to guard and inhabit the secret cave of the warlocks, the imbunche was seen less as an act of torture and more as the creation of an essential part of the cult society. When one imbunche died, another would be created to take its place. This is the level of darkness these real life warlocks were capable of. This is what powered the fear they used to enslave and control the people of the island. And this, is what many of them confessed to on the stand that spring in 1880. As a result, many of the accused were sentenced to long prison terms. These were men who had killed, who had cursed neighbors and blackmailed businesses for protection money. And yet the courts couldn't make their ruling stick. Just one year later, nearly all the warlocks were released. The reason? It was impossible to prove they had belonged to a secret society of black magic, as horrible as the stories had sounded. No one, they thought, could be that evil. Where authority often falls to those with the most wealth, the most weapons, or the most connections, it's unusual to find cases where some other power allows people to rule. But if the story of Chiloe teaches us anything, it's that fear can be just as powerful as any government official: fear of death, fear of poverty, fear of the unknown. Those who called themselves part of the Brujo in 1880 were card-carrying members of a cult that wielded fear like a weapon. Thankfully, the trial helped to put real faces to the shadows that had plagued the people of Chiloé for centuries. Whether or not they received punishment for their crimes was secondary. The warlocks had been exposed, shattering their illusion of fear. But while many saw the trial as the end of that nightmare, there are some who aren't so sure. In 2006, the local court there in Chiloé issued a restraining order against Manuel Cardenas and his brother-in-law. Due to a physical altercation they had had with a 66-year-old farmer named Jose Marquez, they were prohibited from coming within 10 meters of the old man. When asked why he attacked the farmer, Cardenas said it was because of an illness his father had been suffering through. Pain had become a constant part of the man's life, and it had gone on long enough. Cardenius claimed that his father's illness had begun after an encounter with Marques, all the way back in 1992. The pain hadn't stopped since then, and after consulting with a local shaman, they were told why. According to the Machai, the farmer had cursed their father with black magic. Which begs the question, did the trial of 1880 really wipe out the cult of the warlocks? Or did some of them slip through the government's net, living on to spread and grow their sect into the 20th century and beyond? After all, neither the cave nor its occupants were ever found. This episode was made possible by Article. Every single day, I sit down at my desk and I make podcasts. And that's something that I've done for years on a desk from Article. The quality is absolutely amazing, delivery was dead simple, and everyone who sees it can't help but comment on it. Maybe that's because Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices, too. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, Scandi, and boho designs makes furniture shopping simple. I honestly can't get enough of all of those clean lines, rich colors, and gorgeous wood finishes. Article's team of designers are all about finding the perfect balance between style, quality, and price. They're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and looks good doing it. Article offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. Plus, they won't leave you waiting around. You pick the delivery time and they'll send you updates every step of the way. And their knowledgeable customer care team is there when you need them to make sure your experience is smooth and stress-free. Article is offering our listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash lore, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash lore for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. This episode of Lore was made possible by DoorDash. We live in a pretty amazing world, don't we? You can get anything you need when you need it delivered right to your door. With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. For my family, this became a powerful tool when my kids started back up with after-school sports. All of a sudden, there were days when being able to order a meal became a lifesaver. If it wasn't for DoorDash, we'd have been eating dinner way too late. And maybe you've been there, or in a different situation with a similar solution. Sick on the couch, trapped between never-ending meetings, or even at a party and suddenly out of ice or alcohol. In moments like that, DoorDash can provide a clutch assist. DoorDash. Your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now and get almost anything delivered. Must be 21 or older to order alcohol. Drink responsibly. Alcohol available only in select markets. I'm willing to bet that, like me, you work crazy hours and are desperately in need of easy ways to relax. I love that I can open up June's journey and dig in for a little while. Searching for hidden objects, fine-tuning my sense of observation, and enjoying the gorgeous artwork are all so, so helpful in letting me unwind. Mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? Relax and lose yourself in this captivating quest of mystery, murder, and romance. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode of Lore was researched, written, and produced by me, Aaron Mankey. Lore is much more than a podcast. There's a book series in bookstores around the country and online, and the second season of the Amazon Prime television show was recently released. Check them both out if you want more lore in your life. I also make two other podcasts, Aaron Mankey's Cabinet of Curiosities and Unobscured, and I think you'd enjoy both. Each one explores other areas of our dark history, ranging from bite-sized episodes to season-long dives into a single topic. You can learn about both of those shows and everything else going on all over in one central place, theworldoflore.com slash now. And you can also follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Lore Podcast, all one word, and then click that follow button. When you do, say hi. I like it when people say hi. And as always, thanks for listening.